This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everyone. So yesterday, um, after morning zazen, like every other weekday that there is morning zazen, we have a uh, tradition of having the somebody reads a quote after we sit. So we do a little short chant and then write this. Uh, these days we're chanting the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, which we just chanted. And, uh, and then afterwards, now I think it's the doan who reads the quote, who reads a quote. Oftentimes it's a, just a random quote that is just opened from a book. Um, sometimes we mostly uh, read quotes from Suzuki Roshi, our founder uh, from Japan of this lineage. Um, but also sometimes, you know, we might be reading quotes from other people like our founder, Blanche Hartman. Sometimes uh, yeah, different, different quotes can be read. But yesterday, uh, Friday, Cole was the doan and he opened the book and read uh, a quote and I asked him to uh, tell me where it was from because it kind of sparked my curiosity. So I want to start by reading that quote to you. And it comes from the book, Not Always So, which is a book of uh, short lectures from Suzuki Roshi. So here, here it goes. This is from a chapter called, Wherever You Are, Enlightenment Is There. And that's basically what this, this talk is going to explore, uh, both from my end and also I'm going to invite you to share for yourselves what this means to you and how it plays out in your lives. So Suzuki Roshi says, in our practice, the most important thing is to realize that we have Buddha nature. Intellectually, we may know this, but it is rather difficult to accept. Our everyday life is in the realm of good and bad, the realm of duality, while Buddha nature is found in the realm of the absolute, where there is no good and no bad. There is a twofold reality. Our practice is to go beyond the realm of good and bad, and to realize the absolute. It may be rather difficult to understand. So here, Suzuki Roshi is bringing up this idea that uh, runs throughout Buddhism, in particular Mahayana Buddhism, um, but, but beyond Mahayana Buddhism, this idea of Buddha nature. And in Mahayana Buddhism, I would say there is a specific um, push to acknowledging that there is no one who is not uh, endowed in some sense. It's a kind of a weird way of saying it. There's no one that does not partake in Buddha nature. This Buddha nature is elusive. It's hard to talk about. What does it mean to be beyond duality? Right? What is this, uh, in, in some sense, um, when Suzuki Roshi says this in our practice, it's the most important thing is to recognize this Buddha nature. What is he talking about? And how do we go about recognizing it? So later on in this chapter in Not Always So, he goes on to talk about, I think he's giving the talk um, 
it's pretty clear from the talk that he's giving it from the location of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. So he's in the monastery, probably in the late 60s. Um, and he's talking about the kerosene lanterns. So kerosene lanterns are no longer the standard there. This is a recent change. When I was a student at Tassajara, the cabins had kerosene lanterns. There was electricity in a couple places, but for the most part, when you were living there, you, you had a kerosene lantern in your, several kerosene lanterns maybe in your cabin, and you would have to, on your days off, you know, go and, and replenish your kerosene lantern with kerosene, clean it, trim the wick. You know, you had to take care of it because if you didn't take care of your kerosene lantern, it would start smoking and then you would not be able to breathe. <laughs> And this is this was a big problem, actually. And um, I was at least fortunate that when I was there, um, the study hall had electricity. So we had electric uh, lights in our study hall. But I heard stories of the days when um, there were kerosene lanterns to study by, and people were just kind of nodding at the desks, <laughs> falling asleep, and um, you know, kind of getting fumed out by this this the fumes of the kerosene. So in this in this um, this lecture, he brings up this kerosene lantern, this phenomenon of having to take care of one's kerosene lantern so that it's not smoking, so that it's not unhealthy. Uh, I would say it's still unhealthy. Um, but he he likens the kerosene lantern and being able to take care of one's kerosene lantern as um, in some sense as being able to I don't know access or remember our true nature, which is our Buddha nature. And he says it's important to quotes uh, it is important to know how to adjust the flame. He's talking about the kerosene lantern, but then he says, how to adjust the flame in Zazen and in our everyday life. So I wanted to talk today about this, uh, this idea of Buddha nature and how it manifests or how it, um, um, sorry, I have a cat running around who I will also talk about in this talk. Um, <laughs> So this question of how, how does this Buddha nature, what is the nature of Buddha nature? How is it, uh, how can we say this is our true self? What does it mean to be our true self? And if it's the true self, well, what's the, what's the, what's the imposter self? What is the fake self? Or what is the, um, um, the imputed or non-real self? And how do we get caught? And what is freedom? And what is truth? Right, so this is a huge, huge topic. I apologize for throwing it all out at you because <laughs> we're not going to get to the bottom of it, maybe. So I'd like to pause here and, and ask for uh, anyone who wishes to unmute yourself and say something. What is Buddha nature? How do you access it? How is it that it's, if it's there all the time, or maybe we don't think it's there, maybe we struggle uh, and we don't believe in it. What is this idea of uh, all of us without exception have Buddha nature or endowed with this Buddha nature, all of us? 
without exception. That can be a hard one sometimes for people. Marco? Karen. So what just comes up is um, cultivating awareness in what's happening right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I hear two main things there. <laughs> awareness <laughs> and now. Well, actually, I guess cultivating. The cultivating part is another big part of it. Yeah. So as a way of accessing Buddha nature, cultivating awareness right now. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Richard. Um, <clears throat> I heard a Dharma talk recently by Shohaku Humura on this subject. And it kind of surprised me because he talked about Dogen and how Dogen interpreted that phrase, all beings have Buddha nature. Mm. He actually read it as all beings are Buddha nature. Yeah, yeah. Which is something like, I don't have to do anything about it. It's just there. It's, it is. And so it's another, it's sort of a particular way of Dogen read that phrase. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so, so this, uh, this strangeness of saying, like I said, when I said uh, all beings are endowed with, it's like it's a weird way of putting it, that it may be a better way of putting it or a more accurate way is uh, all beings are. That's the way Dogen saw it. Not necessarily, Shaka Humura made the point that that wasn't necessarily how it was interpreted in the past before Dogen. But the Dogen took sort of a radical reinterpretation of that phrase. Yeah, thank you. All beings are. So, Jose. Uh, yes. Um, it's always been a slippery concept for me because I feel that like if you work to try to attain that which you already have, you don't get there. But if you don't do any work at all, you also don't get there. So what do you have to do to get there? I guess not get there. Um, and so I, I just don't even know what, like, what you can do anymore. So that's why this concept remains slippery. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so it's slippery because it's... Um, when we try to grasp it, right, when we work towards it, it's like, what does that mean? How do we do that? Right? This is getting to that question that Suzuki Roshi is asking. How do you adjust your flame? Right? Yeah. Any other thoughts for sharing? Yes. Austin, are you? Oh, yes. Um, the way I've sort of heard this explained like is it like subject and object become like the same the same thing it's like the the self is like subject and object and the way i've heard it like visually explained is like say normally when you're going about your life there are things that we focus on like say you're in a room right you're focusing on the things that are within that room but you're not focusing on the space between the things in that room so like yourself is like sort of like that space like you only know it's there because of the external but then you want to be able to realize the space but the the thing that's difficult about that to me i think the reason why it's difficult to grasp is when you try to rationalize or make something make a logical statement about something <clears throat> you're trying to come to some sort of conclusion 
but when you come to when you try to come to a conclusion you begin to question more and so you actually become further away from something that's concrete by questioning something more um and so then there's like this dilemma of do i do i achieve this by doing nothing or do i achieve this by working towards it as sort of a a goal or a um Mm-hmm. Ask, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I do. I think so. Yeah, it's kind of like how do we get out of our own way? Especially if something is, if it's something that we already are, we already are Buddha nature. If it, like Jose was asking, like if it doesn't seem to be apparent, how do you work towards it? If working towards it, you're actually muddying the waters even further, right? Yes. So, yeah, this is why I think Suzuki Roshi said this may be difficult to understand, right? So I heard, um, thank you, Austin. Oh, you're welcome. I heard um, a couple things about uh, some of the tricky business about it. And then, um, you know, Karen offered a, uh, a way of getting closer to it, right? How about that? How's that, the, this way of adjusting the flame? So stopping, maybe pulling back from thinking, becoming aware of this moment. That can be very hard to do, right? As we know from our Zazen practice, right? Because oftentimes what we become aware of maybe is the chatter of our mind. Jess, did you have a comment? Yeah, I was gonna say something, um, but you can finish your thought if, if you want. Yeah. No, I was gonna go, I was gonna take it, so, so please. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, um, you know, have been, have been thinking about this over time um, and with our, our precepts class especially, and, um, what I, I have come to sort of notice, I guess, um, in my life is flow, is this sort of idea of flow. Um, like a lot of my experiences are really kind, kind of like felt within my body. And um, I notice that like when I do certain things to the flame, like there is a flow that happens. And so like one really good example, I think is just sitting Zazen regularly, like that enables some sort of um, like a flow and like a, or a space to flow, like, like some, something changes um, within my being. And I don't know, other little examples um, of that are like eating right. And you know what I mean? Like just like little things like in the life, in your life, and you can sort of tell if they're, um, I don't know, like giving or taking or something like that. And so I kind of find that uh, that Buddha nature, however we experience that is is really um, impacted by like all of these little practices. So yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Yes. So these little practices, again, when we apply our awareness moment by moment to, um, I would say, cause and effect, right? When you brought up just uh, how you eat, 
right? What you put in, what you take into this body and mind, right? Not just physical substances, but ideas, concepts, right? If we become aware now, um, pure awareness is kind of hard to come by, right? Because usually we have a commentary, right? We have a judge or a critic or something that has a little bit of extra something, right? And that makes sense, right? However, it may not be helpful. So this becoming aware moment after moment, we start to see, maybe we start to see, I would, I would say, if we... Um, if we're able to either let go of or um, allow to recede into the background some of our, um, what we call a discriminative thinking, right? Our judgments, our ideology, like if we allow that to, um, to soften and have an open, non-judgmental awareness, then we start getting clues, right? Do you all notice how when we are not in that place and we are operating from the perspective of our, what we sometimes call our small self, right? That it's very hard. I mean, everything seems kind of frustrating and laborious, right? It can be. But how, again, this is this question of how do you adjust the flame? So when, I'm, I'm doing this little thing here, <laughs> you know, the little dial, like how do you turn it up or turn it down, right? The flame. Um, how do you know when to turn it up and when to turn it down? And what is it that you're turning up and down? Because if you're thinking about what you're doing, sometimes the thinking itself can get in the way of the actual experiencing the moment to moment experience, right? When we have some kind of self-consciousness, we're, you know, we're self-concern, right? We're uh, evaluate in, in an evaluative mode, right? So how do you become receptive and open to one's experience without falling into evaluation? That's tricky, <laughs> right? That's very tricky. Marco? Yes. Nick? Yes. Um, I wanted to throw out kind of an idea that, that, that Karen's comment and, and, and Jess's too kind of ties together for something that's been like uh, in my mind uh, about this, this course. And that's the um, kind of metaphor of breathing. Um, mm -hmm. When we think about everything in our culture from social justice to COVID, there's this, and even in, in your mention of uh, the kerosene lamps and how through lack of care and neglect, it affects our ability to breathe. And something that I've been sitting with to tie me to that idea of, uh, of Buddha nature is um, this metaphor of being able to breathe and how it's a privilege that we do for ourselves, but that we can do for others in our perspective. And in this world where there are so many who can't physically breathe, that kind of that's a, a metaphor that I've used to kind of tie me to that larger perspective. 
um, by focusing on, on, on breathing myself. Thank you. I, I hear a lot of what Jess was bringing up about flow in that, in your comment as well, about breath, about being able to breathe. And I would also, Nick, I would also suggest that when we are open to what is arising without conception, but with complete uh, engagement in the experience, right? We get to see in our own body whether or not there's flow of breath, right? Very specifically, moment by moment, we can see if there's any uh, feeling of stuckness. And then the question, I guess, is what if there's stuckness? What do you do with that? Is that somehow um, an impediment to Buddha nature? <laughs> and thank you for bringing up, um, you know, the larger question of our, um, not just as an individual, but in a society, right? Not just in this one body and mind, right? Which is not separate, actually, right? It's very important that this is not, we are not separate. That when we talk about an internal sense, right? We can't exclude the interdependent nature of this body and mind with all bodies and minds. So thank you for bringing that up. So um, speaking of this idea of um, our true self or our, um, this idea of um, this dichotomy between the small self or big self or small mind and big mind. Suzuki Roshi talks about this quite a bit. Um, you know, I don't think, I don't think the Buddha ever talked about the true self, right? However, when you look through the, the canon, it's very clear that this, um, you know, where we get caught oftentimes where we get caught in this small self is by believing that this, flow of our experience, which we could say is a, um, a description that the Buddha did dis dis uh, use, which is that of the five aggregates, right? When looking at who am I or what is this, right? The five aggregates or the skandhas is one way of describing this thing that we say me. <laughs> we kind of take this, this uh, experience of name and form, right? Perception, our ability to, uh, um, you know, perceiving, sensation, right? Having a sense of uh, um, uh, positive or negative or neutral, right? Mental formations, and then a larger one, consciousness, which is you know, much, much can be said about what is, what does that mean? Consciousness, right? But all of that, that amalgam of these five skandhas as making up a psychophysical self, right? Through body and mind, we call it, you know, we, t we take this collection of these heaps and we say, aha, that's me, or that's you. Now, to take a collection of these items and say, okay, we're going to call this me, I'm going to call it Mako, I'm going to call it Jose or Karen or 
Choro, whoever, I'm just seeing people out there. And to say that, to go there, right, as a conventional imputation, imputed uh, description is not necessarily problematic, right? Where we fall into uh, some significant problems is when we take that collection and we say that it is in, an inherently existent self, that it is somehow permanent, that it, um, that it's somehow real beyond the, um, beyond the flow, which is continually uh, arising and ceasing and in a continual state of becoming, actually, right? When we make that leap, which is impossible in some sense, it feels that it is impossible not to make that leap, right? Sometimes, maybe most of the time even. And yet that's where, uh, that's where we get into trouble. So in terms of looking at these different kinds of like what we call self, if I can imagine that myself is arising and ceasing, the, the, the elements of my, uh, my psychophysical uh, makeup are in constant flux, arising and ceasing, If I just take that and say, you know, conventionally, I'm going to call it myself because I'm, uh, you know, it, that's what I need to do to, to be in the world, right, um, is to make that imputation. It's when that imputation is grasped and made into an actual, like, thing, right, where we attribute some kind of permanence to it. In that is where um, that's actually the heart of delusion. Or the root, the root of delusion. Um, I see a raised hand, Dave. Yeah, one thing that I keep thinking about, I keep going back to Rich's thought, or the, that came from Dogen, of just um, we are Buddha nature, sort of a perspective, and the the, the comprehensiveness when you talked about the skandhas. You know, we see at, through a straw, we hear through a straw <laughs> sort of thing. Everything is, we have this narrow view of what is and the delusion of um, believing that the little piece that I see is me or the little piece that I feel is me without comprehending um, this immensity um, and that I'm, a, um, I'm part of this. Um, even even one deluded um, is seems like an important piece here to me. From it's a part that I struggle with a lot. Say more about this struggle. Yeah, I always frame it as control. And, you know, there's this sphere of influence around myself, and I can you can I can even call what I sense the what's in my control, but ignoring the the immensity that's out there and every every bit, every piece of this universe that contributed to me being here right now in this moment and how interconnected it is, is lost sometimes when I'm so focused on the control of what I what is right around me that I lose the perception that 
I'm just part of, I'm just a gem in Indra's net sort of a thing that, that, um, that's what I lose. Um, and, and times when I call it diluted, <laughs> which is, I'm still in Indra's net vibrating around, but not aware of it. <laughs> yeah. So, so bringing, thank you for bringing this up, this, um, this sense of, uh, a need to control or a wish to control or a, um, I think it's it's kind of like what what Jose brought up, right? There's this fine line between, um, you know, how do you access? How, how do you not give up your your accountability or responsibility, and yet also not fall into control, right? How do you walk that narrow line, right? And um, and what is it about control that we feel like we need? Why do we need it? Because it's damn scary not to have it, right? Because actually that opens up our vulnerability, right? Thank you, Dave. Yes, Anne. I really have more of a question and it has to do with um, kind of distinguishing between bodhicitta and Buddha nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your question is, what's the difference between bodhicitta and Buddha nature? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that bodhicitta is a, um, it's something that's, that can be aroused, whereas Buddha nature doesn't come or go. Right. Now, maybe, um, you know, this, this question that Suzuki Roshi is asking about, um, you know, how important when he says how important it is in our practice, the most important thing is to realize that we have, or if Dogen, you take bring Dogen in, if we are Buddha nature, then, you know, that's very different from, um, you know, there is an aspect of how do we, how do we grow trust? How do we develop this trust? And what does it mean to have trust in Buddha nature? Does it mean that we can do whatever we feel like and that we're, you know, everything's okay, right? Whereas bodhicitta is an aspiration that is, um, you know, there's, there's a, a sense in which it can either be an, an either a passive sense of a wish to wake up for the benefit of all beings, right? It's an aspiration, a wish. But then there's also active bodhicitta, which is how do you put that wish into practice? How do you manifest that wish? And that's, you know, that's what we mean, I think, when we say practice, right? It's an active process. It's not passive. Now, Buddha nature, like how do you realize, how do you come to realize your Buddha nature or that you are Buddha nature? Right. What so very clearly, like the, you can step back and ask the question, what gets in the way? Right. Choro. Um, thank you. Maybe you'll get to this. Um, but one of the most mind blowing things I ever read in Dogen at a certain point was that impermanence is Buddha nature. Yeah. So I don't know if you have anything. <laughs> to say to that. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to this um let's go back to this this these versions of our our of our self, 
right? How many of you have a sense of who you are? Yeah, right? <laughs> That's a very vague question, right? It's very open and allowing, like have a sense. How many of you know who you are? Mm. Yeah, so there's a big gap, right? Between knowing this feeling of certainty. Um, how many of you have had a feeling of, in your life, sometime in your life, of being truly yourself? Now, of those who've had that feeling of somehow, sometime being truly yourself, was it, did it feel like uh, burdensome at the time? Did it feel like you were frustrated? <laughs> were you angry? Were you hateful? Were you greedy? I think this is a universal feeling of our true self is none of those things. We feel this deeply. I think all of us have this experience that our true self is kind of in some way beyond the pettiness of what we can maybe think of as a constricted self, right? Or we, you know, we call it the small mind, right? That is, um, that's caught up in maybe self-concern, maybe not even self-concern, maybe concern for, even concern for others. If one is caught up, then it does not feel like one's true self, one's true nature. Yeah? So it's interesting, this question of, um, you know, thank you, Choro, for bringing this up, this, this, what is this connection between impermanence and one's, um, uh, true self, right? So when I talked about this kind of, this concept of uh, a self that is like the skandhas, the self of the skandhas, again, the skandhas are just a name, right? In a sense, this um, interdependent, constantly changing, you can say impermanent, but constantly in flux, right? There's this arising and ceasing moment by moment, which we, if we are able to stop just for a moment to stop and just be with what's arising and ceasing in an open and allowing way, right? That's actually welcoming and inviting of whatever the experience is. That's impermanence. You can see the flow. You can see that there's no fixed, permanent nature in that. Yeah? But then we get greedy. <laughs> and we want to grab onto it and say, this is me, actually. This is my true me. And uh, as opposed to um, maybe if we, we take a step back and instead of going all the way for grasping, we just... Um, again, this is like this conventional designation. If we conventionally designate this swirl of skandhas as we can maybe, you know, intellectually, we can kind of pluck it out of the, the entire universe. We can pluck out this one thread and say, oh, this is my experience. This is my experience. This is me, right? But if we go for this as, as a mere eye, it's called sometimes the mere eye, right? It is merely described as I, not inherently existent I, right? Our, our downfall when we fall into uh, 
a pit of suffering is when we want to grasp onto it. Because as soon as we grasp onto, oh, this is my true self, and then we don't allow anything to come in, like life itself, and the fact that as humans, we get irritated, we are, you know, we, f we find that we, uh, that the three poisons kind of runs through us, right? It runs through our experience. We get caught. As soon as we get caught, then we feel like we've fallen to the pit of hell. And I, our true self, this feeling of peace and spaciousness is somehow just in an instant, just gone, right? We all know that experience as well. And then sometimes we blame that on other things. <laughs> Usually we blame it on external, uh, external factors. You made me mad, <laughs> right? Or, or um, you know, somehow I got knocked off of my, you know, my true self, you know, the, the self that I find when I sit quietly in Zazen and my mind is allowed to calm down and um, it feels bountiful and spacious and there's nothing but inner plentitude right when we fall off our cushion in this way instead of blaming or seeking to find either um you know we we do one of two things or maybe there's more but i think i want to highlight one of two th uh, two different things that we do at this point one, when we, uh, you know, when we meet with uh, our expectations not rising, you know, not being met about our own selves or about the world, right? Sometimes we might fall into numbing out or, or um, you know, some way of denying our experience, right? Or we go after it and we either blame or externalize or we may, you know, we might, you know, try to find an answer, right? So we have these tendencies. Um, we can only sustain maybe, you know, uh, a feeling of agitation before, for so long before we might check out, or is that's an example of that, right? Or we might become seekers and try to dig in deeper, right? Now, all those ways of trying to navigate this complexity may end up becoming uh, like this, this feeling of like trying, of, trying to wash off the mud with more mud, right? Um, I wanted to bring up a story, and I've, I've brought up this story in other, uh, in other talks. Um, it's the story of Angulimala. How many of you have heard this story of Angulimala? Many, many people. So in the story, um, for those of you who don't know the story, it's kind of a story of the Buddha and a serial killer mass murderer, a terrorist, where Angulimala, and I'm going to read the little description from, this comes, the story of Angulimala is in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses of the Buddha. It's number 86 for those who, uh, who want to look it up. So um, there was an occasion when the Blessed One was living in Jetta's Grove, Anattapindiga's Park, that there was a bandit in the area. And the king, Pasanadi of Kosala, uh, was very aggrieved at this, at this bandit, who was, and then here's the quote that I wanted to read, who was murderous, bloody-handed, 
given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts were laid waste by him. He was constantly murdering people, and he wore their fingers as a garland. Okay, that's the name. That's where his name comes. Angulimala is garland of fingers, literally. So the st story goes that the Buddha was, um, you know, decided to go on his alms round. So he went out and walked down this road. And a number of people war tried to warn him by saying, don't go down that path because that's where Angulimala is. And he has killed groups of, of men as large as 40, just gone in and, and murdered everybody. So don't go down that road if you uh, want to be safe. The Buddha, you know, just continued to walk. And eventually he came upon Angulimala, or Angulimala was hiding, hiding out in the bushes and uh, saw the Buddha and thought, ooh, here's a single solitary person. I've, you know, I'm used to, to destroying many people, many groups of people. And, um, and this is just one. So he started creeping up behind him, behind the Buddha as he was walking. It said that the, as the Buddha was walking and Angulimala was in, you know, in pursuit, that the, the longer they went, it seemed that the further along the Buddha went, you know, had traversed, and Angulimala started to run after the Buddha, and yet the Buddha seemed like he was just walking at his usual pace. But Angulimala kept getting further and further back, right? Finally, Angulimala yelled to the Buddha, stop! And the Buddha said, you stop. I have already stopped. Now you stop. And Angulimala said, how, this doesn't make any sense. How is it that, how is it that this has any, what is this, the, what is the meaning of this? I'm going to read the verse that Angulimala says. While you are walking, recluse, you tell me you have stopped. But now, when I have stopped, you say I have not stopped. I ask you now about the meaning. How is it that you have stopped and I have not? And the Buddha, Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings but you have no restraint towards things that live. That is why I have stopped and you have not. And Angulimala says, Oh, at long last, this recluse, a venerated sage, has come to this great forest for my sake. Having heard your teaching me the Dhamma, I will indeed renounce evil forever. Oh, if it were so easy. <laughs> So saying, the bandit took his sword and weapons and flung them into a gaping chasm's pit. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet and then and there asked for the going forth. So he asked to be ordained at this point. The enlightened one, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words, Come, bhikkhu. And that was how he came to be a bhikkhu. So that's just the first part of the story, but um, I wanted to bring this up as, uh, you know, what happens when, what is this stopping? 
how does one stop? And when the, um, when the churning and the, uh, the chatter of the small self arises, what does it mean to stop? How does one do that? Pat. Well, by, by stepping, just stepping out of um, the world of thoughts and taking a breath and, and another breath and, and another breath and just being completely with those breaths. Thank you. Anyone else? How does one, Nick? I, I love this story, uh, first of all. And um, I've thought about how, how there's an Angulimala in all of us and how the name arises from these accoutrements of ourselves that we adorn ourselves with. Like mm-hmm. the, the fingers are the decorations of our own self-concept. And um, it's in stopping to pursue those, uh, those decorations that, that, uh, that, that that's, how, that's how the stopping happens. Thank you. Yeah, little decorations. <laughs> decorations of selfing. Austin, yes. My, my question is, when the self is out of the way, when you realize that the self is impermanence, like that it is liquid, and you get into this um, flow or state of mind, whatever you want to call it, from what I experience there isn't uh, the awareness really feels more like being not aware. It's very strange. It's, you know, it's, it's a paradox, but I guess what's difficult about it for me is say I do um, say I do get away from myself, right? Without a self, without this definite, without this uh, definitive thing, without knowing, how do I have a purpose for myself? If there's no self, then what is purpose? You know, like what is, um, yeah, yeah. When I, self is gone, like where's, what happens to purpose, I guess? Yeah, like where does intention uh, come from? Yeah, Right. I hear your question is. Like what, what happens to our intention if there's no self, if there's no selfing? Yeah. So yeah, I think this is a very important, um, this is where the different kinds of self come up, right? The different ways that we consider what self is, right? If we consider our self as our likes and dislikes, right? We could even say like, you know, our values, some of our values um, could be uh, our personality. When we get caught up in that or we, um, not, uh, let's see, how do I want to say this? 
when we get cons- ca- caught up in trying to define it, then it, it becomes objectified in a sense that then it becomes an obstacle, right? When it becomes an object and it's sep- it becomes separate, we somehow become separate from us. I think what you said about um, not knowing is a huge part of it as well, right? In, and again, how we define knowing, like when I ask the question, do you know yourself, right? It's not, do you know about yourself? Like there's a big difference between knowing something uh, in, its, in our experience of it as opposed to knowing about it. When we know about something, it's almost like we fall into propositional language. We know that it is this way, that it is not that way, right? It's in the realm of duality. As opposed to what maybe is a deeper experiential knowing where it's not necessarily something we can talk about, but there's a sense of um, maybe a sense of connection where knowing about it is actually kind of recedes into the background in importance. Of course, you know, somebody may, you know, grab us and say, tell me something. (laughs) And then we, you know, we might collapse into this, uh, this needing to be able to talk about it in a dualistic way. Right. It's, it's funny in the, in the chapter that I read um, the, you know, this, this Suzuki Roshi's um, wherever you are, enlightenment is there. He does say, he says, um, (laughs) he says, maybe I am a very smoky kerosene lamp. I don't necessarily want to give you a lecture. (laughs) Um, I just want to live with you. Moving stones, having a nice hot spring bath, and eating something good. When I start to talk, it is already a smoky lamp, kerosene lamp. So when we have to talk about it and we have to come up with, when we have to access our opinions and our belief structures, right, and put it into language, we, we come into this, uh, you know, it's something very intimate and connecting actually gets, uh, gets left behind in that. And yet we have to do it. This is our human uh, life, right? So how do we navigate? And this is where this turning the flame, like being able to adjust the flame, right? How do we navigate sometimes stepping forward and speaking, other times letting, letting things be and just allowing deeply what's, what's happening to unfold without our, uh, our, our agendas, without having, um, you know, trying to grasp at our intentions. And yet, if we fall too far on that side, then we may become uh, unaware of ourselves and our intentions, or we may not be able to, like, we have to be able to, to see in the foreground, to bring something into the foreground, and then allow it to recede into the background, right? But there's this constant, you can't do both at one time. So sometimes it feels like you're kind of flipping back and forth, right? The reason I brought up the story of Angulimala 
is to say that not only in this sense of stopping, but that without fail, <laughs> coming back to this idea of Buddha nature, is there anyone who is beyond, who, who does not, is not, uh, is not Buddha nature, right? In this story, even this, uh, this murdering bandit is able to stop. Now, as the story goes, uh, the king actually comes to, you know, he doesn't know that this, this, uh, this has happened, that the Angulimala has taken, taken vows and has become a bhikkhu. So he goes and he, he visits the Buddha and says, you know, we need to do something about this murdering bandit. And the Buddha says, well, actually, he's right here. And, um, and it's interesting because the king uh, doesn't, you know, uh, take Angulimala to prison, right? At this point, he actually trusts the Buddha's care of Angulimala. And he, um, he allows it. He allows the Angulimala. And he actually um, offers Angulimala new robes. The king does in the story. However, at the same time, in, this, you know, the, in the later part of the story, Angulimala goes on an alms round himself. And when he goes into the village, the villagers start throwing things at him, like broken pots and vegetables, rotten vegetables. He gets chased out. Right? And this happens again and again for Angulimala. He doesn't get fed. The villagers don't want to feed him. And he comes back to the company of the Buddha. And what does the Buddha do? What does he say? The Buddha says, this is your experience to bear. Right? He doesn't try and kind of rescue him from it. He says, yeah, this is yours to bear, Angulimala. In some sense saying, this is your karma. But it's not that it's not a punishment. Like like um, the Buddha doesn't say you you know you deserve to be punished, right? He doesn't give him over to the king and say yes, go ahead and take him into prison, right? So this story, what this story is um, is pointing to, in some sense, I think of as being as a great trust in cause and effect. It's a deep faith in cause and effect. It's not that when one endowed with Buddha nature can't do wrong, can't have, uh, um, can't, you know, cause great harm. Or in our looking at ourselves, what do we do when, you know, when we feel off, when we, when we see ourselves being uh, unskillful, when we find, um, or even not, not necessarily even unskillful, let's not even go into that realm, but just feeling our own emotions of um, maybe something like anger. I will, I will say that myself, um, these last months have uh, brought out a lot of anger in myself, right? Some of it, you know, in this kind of feeling of righteous indignation, right, at injustice. Right. How do we not turn away from that and yet not be swept up in it? 
is this, um, you know, is, is something that is unpleasant to feel this anger? Like, are we trying, is the purpose of our practice to not feel anger? No. Right. Now, I, I will say that um, sometimes, you know, people say like the three poisons are greed, hate, and delusion. Sometimes anger is kind of lumped in with hatred and it's, it's very different, right? Can you have anger without hostility and without hatred? Yes, absolutely. Can you be angry with love? Absolutely, right? So rather than, um, you know, on the one side to when we try to use our practice as a means to kind of peace out, right? That doesn't work. It may, you know, we may feel like, oh, I'm going to, you know, sit zazen and then I'm going to, you know, calm my body and mind. And then these, these uncomfortable things are not going to no longer arise in me, right? I see Bruce, Bruce laughing. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like try that for a while, right? Now what happens when, uh, uh, you know, and as Nick brought up, like this Angulimala within us appears, how do we uh, you know, how do we take care of that? Do we let this inner Angulimala off the hook? No, like the Buddha did not, right? The Buddha did not go in and rescue Angulimala um, from, from feeling the fruits of his karma. He said, this is yours to bear. And yet, did the Buddha um, feel the need to uh, give punishment to Angulimala? He did not, right? He allowed him to join his Sangha. Rob, did you have your hand up? Yes. Please. I just want to, I don't want to remind you, you, you said you would say something about your cat. So I just, I don't want... To forget about that part. That's um, that's what's that's one of the many things that's held my interest through this talk is oh. <laughs> how it how it ties in with your cat. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> I'm joking. I know. <laughs> um, my my cat's name is Angulimala, or Guli Guli for short, and. Um, and she got that name because she was, um, you know, I think she really wants a garland of fingers. She's, she's, a, she's a little monster, actually. But there's hope for her. Yes. <laughs> yes, Jeff. Yeah. Great story. Love the stop. And I think what, what just came into my mind, so, so when help arises for me, um, if, if I can access the space, it's really helpful to like allow that to happen, but also to sort of like to acknowledge that there are multiple parts of myself, right? And what just kind of dawned on me is another interpretation of the Angulimala and Buddha story could be that like the Buddha is, is the within Angulimala's self like that's like his sort of like inner wisdom like almost talking to him and i think that we all have that ability right to to 
the acting out, but then to also acknowledge that and um, sort of know what to do or to know to allow ourselves to continue to act out or whatever. And so it's been really, really helpful for me to realize like there's so many parts. So what part is this, you know, and yeah. how do I work with that? Yes, and how to be skillful, right? How to take care of those parts that might be our inner Angulimalas, right? And, and so what that looks like, it may not look like, um, you know, we don't, if we, if we notice some part in us that is causing great harm, in inner harm or external harm, right? How do we, uh, we may find that another part comes up in response that wants to get rid of this part, this, this unruly part, right? And wants to, and through, by any means, right? Maybe through shaming, maybe through criticism, right? Does that work? Anybody have an ex experience where shaming oneself or criticizing oneself actually gets rid of the part? Does it ever, does it ever work? This is a great thing to reflect on. And in particular, I think when we're able to slow down or even stop, right? Just to stop. Even if we can only stop for a breath, when we're able to just stop and look and, uh, and with an open-hearted, curious mind of like, what's happening here, right? Letting the, um, the commentator, you know, maybe we have to actually ask the commentator, the inner commentator to, you know, to take a step back. We may need to ask that, that part to step back for a moment. When all of these um, opinion makers <laughs> is able to step back a little bit, what emerges? And I invite you to try this. And I think this is the meaning of, you know, when Suzuki Roshi, I think the, the title of this, you know, wherever you are, enlightenment is there. Like, how do we take that deeply into our bones so that no matter what circumstances we are, even if we're, you know, uh, we're feeling the flames, like our kerosene lantern is out of control and it set the curtains on fire, right? And now the house is burning. Like, how do we uh, take in wherever we are, enlightenment is there? Pausing, right? When we allow all of these different um, agendas to take a step back and we just to take up this stopping, what do we find is left over? What is the ground of our being when we allow all our likes and dislikes to recede into the background for just a moment? We might feel great pain, right? Especially if we've gotten, you know, we've somehow torched our own, you know, our own abode, right? We might see the destruction that we've caused or that we've allowed, and we may feel great pain. It's not that it's not painful. However, what I'm suggesting is that in this phrase, like wherever you are, enlightenment is there, 
that there's some sense of, um, maybe it's just a sense of a matter of factness. This is, this is what it feels like. This is the experience that I'm having, right? But in that, when pain is there, what naturally arises in that when we are not trying to handle the situation, when we all the, the agendas are allowed to, to, to stop or to cease, to calm down, what we find is a natural ability to be compassionate. To just say, oh, I see. I see how it is. Right. This only happens when when we are uh, when the the inner, you know, commentator can settle down. And again, you know, if you find that that inner commentator just won't shut up and keeps coming up, like if you try to wrestle it to the ground and kick it out, that's not actually going to help. It may be that your relationship to that inner uh, commentator, you know. Maybe it needs to say something before it's able to step back, right? And again, this is that, like, how do you, you know, what's turning the dial? Turning it up, turning it down, you know? And this is something that's, this is practice. Yes, Karen. Yeah, I, and I was just thinking, especially as you said that compassion, I'd been thinking about Austin's kind of question about intention and kind of, as practice, you know, asking about intention, you know, well, what is intention? And thinking about Angulimala, you know, what was his intention? He was very good at what he was doing, but his intention was this terrible thing. And then what was his intention? You know, how did that change? And so I'm thinking of using that in practice of just asking, well, what is intention now? And that that might help be open to when the compassionate intention arises um, that I really feel it maybe. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Thank you. This, uh, this um, we did just recently in, in our, um, the precept study group, we were talking about this question of be becoming aware of one's intention. Right. And even if you don't feel like you have a specific guiding intention that's, that's in operation, it's like, what, how do you access that? You, again, it's like the instruction is very simple to say, very difficult maybe in practice, simply stopping and then looking. Stop and look, right? And maybe ask this question, what is the operating intention here? And we're going, it's, uh, it's getting late, so I wanted to end, but I wanted to end with uh, something that... Um, one of our precept group folks <laughs> uh, just posted today in this question of uh, a daily self-examination and a daily self-examination of one's intention. Um, here, I'm going to read this this quote: Atisha always placed a unique emphasis on the importance of a kind heart. And rather than ask people, how are you? He would say, has your heart been kind? And then this person writes, we talked of a daily self-examination. 
Right? For me, that's a question for me at the end of a day and an intention as the sun rises. Has your heart been kind? So as an intention of getting in touch with what is, what's arising now at any moment to stop, be able to stop and trust that enlightenment is right there. What is my intention? And then a little bit further, has my heart been kind? So no matter what's happening, no matter what's happening, to be able to ask that question, is there kindness here in whatever it is, in the anger, within the anger, is there, can there be kindness? Can anger be kind? Maybe not for very long, but anyway, I wanna stop with that and thank you all for your participation. Um, we'll go ahead and, and uh, have our closing verse chant. And then if people want to ask questions or, or speak longer, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more before we do our breakout rooms.